Hey, everybody. Emily Abadi here. You are listening to Hurdle, a wellness-focused podcast where I connect with everyone from your favorite athletes to top experts and industry CEOs about their highest highs, toughest moments, and everything in between. We all go through hurdles in life, and my goal through these discussions is to empower you to better navigate yours and move with intention so that you can stride toward your own big potential. And of course, have some fun along the way. Today, I am so elated to bring you my conversation with Dr. Emily Splickle. She's a New York City podiatrist, a human movement specialist, and CEO of Naboso, a company that makes all good things for your feet, including insoles and toe spacers, socks, footwear, you name it. We are talking today about all things feet. I know sexy topic, but honestly, the second I mentioned on social media that I was navigating a little bit of plantar fasciitis, I also talked about it in an episode here on Hurdle. My messages, my emails, your questions went wild. So clearly feet are a hot topic. And that's why I have Dr. Emily Splickle here on the show today. We are talking about all of your hot foot questions. I I'm like dying thinking about like this wording. It makes me laugh Uh, from goodness. What to do about plantar fasciitis and how to treat it and maybe even prevent it. Plus we wrap about Achilles pain, stress fractures, bruised toenails, and a bunch of other good stuff. If you have more foot questions that aren't answered in today's episode, hit me with a listener question by clicking on over to the show notes and get it answered in an upcoming episode of five minute Friday. Make sure you're following along with the show over on the socials. It's at Hurdle Podcast. I am over at Emily Abadi. And if you are not yet subscribed to the weekly Hurdle newsletter, I'd love to be in your inbox every single Friday. The link to subscribe, which is absolutely free, is in the show notes as well. And with that, let's get to hurdling. Today, I am sitting down with Dr. Emily Splickle. She is a functional podiatrist. How are you doing today? Doing awesome. Thanks for having me on. So happy to have you here. I feel like the fact that there's a word in front of podiatrist is probably something that we should address right from the get-go. So what does it mean to be a functional podiatrist? A functional podiatrist, almost like a functional medicine doctor, right, is looking at the body from a very integrated, holistic perspective, which is what I do. I'm looking at functional movement, which is part of it. So the way that we walk, the way that we move, our repetitive patterns every day. But then because of the type of patient that I treat, I am factoring in stress levels, diet, sleep patterns, gut biomes, a lot of the stuff that a functional medicine doctor would as well. It's so interesting, right? Because when we think of the feet, clearly not directly next to the stomach, but you say something like we think about the gut and there is a correlation between even that, right? It's probably something that a lot of your patients come in and they're like, what do you mean my gut has something to do with how my feet feel? I feel like gut health really became a little bit more in the known because of COVID. I don't know, maybe in my world it has because COVID really showed like inflammation, like this is what inflammation does. 
COVID can destroy your gut and put a lot of inflammation in the gut itself. And then that can cause a lot of these obscure symptoms that people would start to connect to from brain fog to buzzing in the nerves. I've actually seen quite a few patients with COVID who would get buzzing and vibrating in the nerves in their feet. And it's all inflammatory based. This is some important information to know, only the beginning of what we're going to dive into today. So before I start asking you the hard-hitting feet questions, why don't you give us a little bit of background into how you began practicing? I know not all that long ago, you moved from New York to Arizona. So give us a little bit of your backstory. Yeah, lived in New York City for 20 years. Absolutely love, love, love the city. Started there actually with a background in forensics at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. So completely not related to feet. And (laughs) then uh, took a break from that and actually became a personal trainer. So I've been in the fitness industry for over 20 years. And during my time in fitness, I reconnected to my love for movement. I was a competitive gymnast for 13 years. So that is at my core of movement and barefoot movement is being a gymnast. So then when I was going through or being a personal trainer fitness, I wanted a more advanced degree. So I started looking at graduate school, medical schools, fell into podiatry kind of by chance. There's a podiatry school in New York City in Harlem, and that is where I went to school. When I was going through podiatry school, it was so isolated and disconnected from the rest of the body. And I was still being a personal trainer and teaching classes. And I was like, wait, there's something that's missing here. So before I completed my residency, I actually went back to school and got my master's in human movement. And that helped me to connect what I was appreciating and intuitively connecting with fitness and movement to podiatry feet became this master's in human movement. And then it just further evolved just off of my own curiosity for breath work, polyvagal theory, emotion, stress, fascia, nervous system. And it just kind of snowballed from there into what I do now. Well, you mentioned a buzzword, fascia. And that is the first thing that I want to talk about with you here today, specifically plantar fasciitis. I am dealing with it right now, although I'll knock on every piece of wood that is near me as you and I speak. I feel as though I'm coming out of it, but it is, I am sure you get it all the time, the biggest pain point for so many. So why don't we start with what could be, and I know they are endless, but some of the causes of experiencing plantar fasciitis. And if you will kind of break down exactly what that actually means is going on. Yeah. So plantar fasciitis is irritation or micro tearing to the plantar fascia on the bottom of the foot. And what the plantar fascia is, just quick anatomy lesson, it's the thick band of connective tissue that runs from the heel and it splits into five slips that goes into the base of each toe. So your plantar fascia extends the entire foot and can be influenced by the digits, which is important when I go into certain recommendations. Your plantar fascia is a rubber band and it is part of how we transfer energy. So if you are running, jumping, walking, whatever it is you're doing, you have to be able to load and unload energy to obviously move and move efficiently. Now, depending on your baseline elasticity or this rubber band effect, you may overload or not have the stretch that is required for the activity you're doing. So then you start to micro tear it. 
And then that micro tearing just creates a pain cycle. We won't go into is it inflammation or not. We'll just go into it's this pain cycle that is triggering and talking to the patient or the individual as a sharp pain, especially after a period of rest. And I don't know if you experienced this, but it'll be first step in the morning is very classic plantar fasciitis, or you've been sitting a while and then you get up and you walk across the room and you have that sharp stabbing pain in your heel again. Why that happens is because irritated tissue is sticky. So it kind of gets stuck down and then you go to stand up and you're like, and you kind of rapidly re, <laughs> re-stretch it again. And then that causes this sharp pain. Now, some of the most common causes that I see in my office is a delayed stabilization of the foot is one of the most common. Now that could be from foot type. So flat feet, and there's many types of flat feet, so we'll just keep it broad for now. But flat feet cause a slower foot, so you are not stabilizing as quickly. Footwear can do it, meaning that if you wear overly supportive shoes all the time and you suddenly overload the foot and you're so used to the shoe doing the work versus your foot, you can overload it. Or if you always wear cushion shoes and you suddenly be into more of like a barefoot or a minimal environment, you're going to overload the foot. So sometimes people would associate this with their rapid transition into barefoot shoes or minimal shoes, and they blame the shoe. It's not the shoe. It was the transition that they did. Um, And then sometimes it can be from very stiff, rigid feet, like really high arches are susceptible to plantar fasciitis as well. And then some of it could just be really activity dependent. Um, I used to see it a lot in say like CrossFitters doing box jumps and they just didn't have the recovery or the balance between stress and recovery to the tissue Mm -hmm. and eventually it broke down. Yeah. Yeah. So, so many causes clearly here. It's not like a one size all like, oh, you have plantar fasciitis. This is what you have to do to fix it. I know in my case, uh, I am realizing that I haven't been actually using my toes much in my stride. And so because I am relying on the rest of my feet to do the work, that is where the pain kind of started from. And now a big part of my physical therapy is literally just getting onto my toes more, like learning how to incorporate them into a lot more of my movements and stuff like that. <laughs> yep. And th- so that's why it's important that I said that your plantar fascia goes all the way to your toes. So you need to use your toes, strengthen your toes, engage them. They're, they're part of the party as well, right? And if we don't use them, then things like this can happen. Totally. And I know that there are a lot of individuals who ask a question like, well, how do I use my toes? How do I warm up my toes? Do you have any thoughts, feelings, opinions on that? The action of the toes is that they're designed to be long, straight, flat, and in contact with the ground. So that's that's the ideal digit alignment is and spread, right? So long, straight, flat, spread, and engaging. The engaging, which is called toe flexor strength, is really a key foundational functional action of the foot. And you can strengthen it by just pushing your toes into the floor, (laughs) which is called short foot. And when you push your toes into the floor, what you should see or feel is that your arch kind of starts to lift or contract. There's a response that happens from toe contractures, which is this lifting of the arch. 
the way that I teach it to be more functional is that when you push your toes down, I need your pelvic floor to lift because that's the way that it actually works when we are moving in the real world. And technically, I would want to add in the diaphragm as well. So you would want to be exhaling as you push your toes down, as your pelvic floor lifts. So you're stacking those three things. I'm literally sitting here like doing it as you're talking to me, practicing (laughs) all of this movement simultaneously. Okay. So for those that have chronic plantar fasciitis, maybe it's someone who feels as though they cannot remember the last time they didn't have pain in their plantar fascia. Is there hope for them? What do you tell them? This is actually a lot of what I see in my practice. And especially when I was in New York City, it was almost every single one of my patients were chronic non-responding plantar fasciosis, let's call it. So it's chronic, it's degenerated in nature. And they were doing what Dr. Google told them to do or what their friend told them to do, or (laughs) maybe some other podiatrist, whoever it was. And they were really treating it actually more as an acute condition And an acute condition responds to plantar fasciitis treatments differently than chronic. Chronic plantar fascial stress is when you've either had your symptoms for longer than six months, so consistently for six months, or you get this waxing and waning that it'll kind of spike and it'll be there for a month and it'll go quiescent and it'll come back a couple months later. And there's patients that could have that for years, like 10 years that it's persisting like this waxing and waning. What I want to do in those patients is rule out any sort of thickening, degeneration, and even a partial tear of the plantar fascia. And it's very common in chronic cases to have tearing of the plantar fascia. And when your plantar fascia tears, it actually frays. So the listeners could almost like visualize like a rope that's like torn or frayed at the ends and it's kind of chaotically sitting there and then the pieces sit next to each other and then kind of get re-adhered to this frayed it's like a messy disorganized haystack if you want to think of it so we we need to bring organization to that tissue in my office i do regenerative injections so either prp different growth factors there's amniotic and placental injections the fda is getting kind of weird with some of them so there's only certain ones on the markets now But that's what I specialize in in my practice. I did surgery for five years out of residency, and that's where people would do a fasciotomy, and they would just cut and release the fascia and then just move the pieces far apart from each other and say, like, okay, you're not going to have any symptoms if it's just, like, not even connected. Um, Very successful, these fasciotomies. However, there is research that shows if your plantar fascia is cut – the digit stabilization in your forefoot, you actually start to get a delay and a a disconnection in how that part of the foot optimizes or stabilizes. So I opt more for a regenerative technique. Okay. So there is hope is basically what you're saying. There is hope, but you need to make sure you understand what you're dealing with. And I just wrote a blog on this and did an IG post of that you really have to understand because if you're being treated like you have acute plantar fasciitis, you're not going to respond or you might respond for a week. And then as soon as it you stress it again, it's going to come back. So having an accurate diagnosis and an understanding is super important. 
And that's part of why I do podcasts like this is to advocate that patients understand and take ownership of their body and question things and say, no, I don't think this is right. I think I might actually have maybe a tear. Please investigate. Right. Investigate. So make sure you speak one-on-one with an expert. The advocating is great, but then it is in the power of the powerful hands of the listener to take this information and do something with it and advocate for themselves. Exactly. Perfect. Okay. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about toenails. Wow. Love all of these topics for us. Bruised toenails. I'm a runner. I'm sure you meet with a lot of runners, obviously toenail bruising, not exclusive to the running community, but seen very frequently. For someone who has a bruised toenail or toenail pain, how do they go about doing something about that? Or should they just be leaving it completely alone? Uh, I do not advocate bathroom surgery. So whatever (laughs) I recommend... I didn't tell you to do it. Uh, so uh, any of these, the the blood under the nail. So you're running, what happens? This is primarily to the second. You can see it in the first, especially with like the marathons. I would see a ton of patients getting it into the great toe as well. But primarily the second, because the second is longer on many people. So you're jamming into the shoe when you run and then you're essentially not bruising it, you're creating a micro injury that bleeds underneath the ma- underneath the nail. So the blood stuck under the nail, it's called a subungual hematoma. It's your medical term for it. And it can be very painful because it is pressure. So this pressure of the blood under the nail is just extremely um, kind of pressure increasing. It's in a fixed space. So what you want to do is you have to relieve the pressure is ultimately what you're trying to do in an acute setting, right? So what I would do, again, this is not your bathroom surgery, but I would use a sterile instrument and I would poke holes in the nail to allow it to bleed through. Now, when you do that, almost all patients notice an immediate decrease in the pain because I relieve the pressure, the blood comes out. And then this is, this is the important part because if this is happening a lot to your listeners, Trauma is the number one trigger to fungal nails because now you have this opening and fungal infections in the nail are in and under the nail bed. So trauma, you want to be really careful and watch the nail and how it grows out. If there's too much blood under the nail, you disconnect all the fibers that are connecting the nail to the nail bed and you could actually lose the nail. If you do lose the nail, then I do advise seeing a podiatrist. I know it might seem really small or like a small issue, but to make sure the nail grows out appropriately and in a way that you're not going to get fungus. So I would actually give patients a topical antifungal lacquer as the nail is growing out because I do not want fungus at any point to get under that nail bed. So hypothetically speaking, if someone you were speaking to right now had lost their pinky toenail somehow and had no idea how it happened, is it bad to get a pedicure and have them paint the pinky as though there was a nail there? No, that's that's totally fine. You know, the, the pinky nail of all of the nails is the one that you will probably get some hypertrophy to it. So some thickening and the thickening doesn't necessarily mean that there's fungus in it, but a lot of people's pinky toenails just look 
random. They're super small. They're super <laughs> thick. You cut them off. There's like no nail there then. So it's just kind of this interesting vestigial nail. Um, so yeah, I don't know if this is you. <laughs> <laughs> but you can paint it. Spoiler alert, it's me. <laughs> you can totally paint it. Okay, good. I, I feel more confident knowing that I literally did this about an hour and a half ago. So for those that are wondering, but what about the bigger toenails? Like, is that something that you shouldn't be doing if you've lost maybe, did you refer to it as the great toe before? It is the great toe, yes. Okay, if you lose the great toe, the biggest toe you got, is it bad to paint that? Honestly, I wouldn't. One, it's just going to look like crazy. <laughs> it's not going to look the same. But there are these medical products that you can, it's essentially a acrylic, but a, a medical acrylic. And it goes on like a nail and it is intended to guide the way that the nail is growing out. That you can paint. And I would not do this from a nail spa on the corner, I would go to a podiatrist to do it more medically. And then yes, you could paint that and you would essentially follow that as the nail grows out. And it takes okay. a year. Here's a fun fact. It takes a year for a nail to grow out, your toenails to grow out. But the pinky guy is a little less. Another question that came in, does the drop of a shoe matter? I know this is a yes, but let's talk a little bit about what someone may need to know about shoe when it comes to either stack height or drop? Yeah. So heel toe drop is really what this, this listener is referencing. The heel toe drop is the angle between the heel to the toe, right? So how much there is this declination, how much of a, you know, think like high heels, right? So how much are you pushing the foot into what's mimicking like a heeled position or a plantar flexion of the ankle? Now, the drop, why that was initially put into shoes, running shoes, was to offload the Achilles tendon. It'll, it's just putting it on a little less tension and to pull the foot into more of a neutral position. So it also offloads the plantar fascia and other structures of the foot. Now, that is in certain foot types. Not all foot types will respond the same to a heel toe drop because they start on a flat ground, beautifully neutral, or maybe even higher arch and rigid. So you don't want to be pushing those feet into a more rigid plantar flex supinated position, let's say. So this is where I try to put as many people into a transitional drop which is between eight and 10 millimeters. Uh, a traditional drop just for the listeners is between 14 and 16 millimeters. So it's, it's not that much. It's not like five inches, right? So it's, but it's enough to overload the tissue in certain ways. Transitional eight to 10 millimeters, zero drop, which is kind of like these quote unquote barefoot shoes that are out there is zero to three millimeters. I'll give a couple brands of different ones. Vivo Barefoot is probably the most well-known zero drop, zero shoes, kind of like the name, but it's spelled different with an X, is another zero drop shoe that's on the market. More that transitional is going to be like on running, um, ultra falls under transitional, and then like your New Balance Saucony, all of those are traditional. Now stack is different. Stack is not the same as a heel-toe drop, even though heel-toe drop shoes 
have a stack under them, but the stack is how much cushion and elevation is the entire shoe lifted off of the ground. The higher the stack, the more removed you are from all of the sensory information from the ground that you need to move. So I am, for the most part, anti-stack because I want people to connect to the ground from a sensory perspective. The shoe that all the listeners know that push stack to be super trendy is Hoka. And they started as a ultra marathon shoe. So there was a reason for all that stack and that cushion because you were defined physiology by running ultra marathons, right? So it was like, hey, let me just take some of that impact from you by giving you this stack or this cushion. Now it's super trendy. All the shoes are stacked. It's a trend now, but I would ideally want someone with as little stack as possible to optimize natural foot function. Popping in to today's episode to give some love to my sponsors, starting with Open. I am obsessed with Open. I don't know if you've tried breathwork yet, but I started with Open, which is a platform that offers live and on-demand breathwork, meditation, yoga, Pilates, and so much more. I started breathwork with Open about a month and a half ago now, and it is such a simple joy at the very beginning of my day. I do between a three and five minute. I actually have worked up to a five minute session now. I don't even know who I am. Breathwork moments every single morning, and it just makes me feel energized and more present to tackle whatever it is that's ahead of me, whatever workout usually I'm about to dive into. I love that Open has the option to take classes live. They also have an option to bring friends with unlimited guest passes once you sign up. Open also partners with musicians, producers, sound designers, DJs, and curators to co-create classes for an immersive experience that takes you deeper into your practice. I am head over heels for open and I know that you will be too. You have got to try it with me. Get 30 days free when you visit withopen.com slash hurdle. Again, once more, that URL is withopen, W-I-T-H-O-P-E-N.com slash hurdle to get 30 days free today. I can't wait to see you in class. Also want to give some love to my dear friends at Inside Tracker. I literally like four minutes ago just scheduled my next ultimate test. This is my second official marathon cycle that I am kickstarting by using Inside Tracker. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with Inside Tracker, let me give you the lowdown. Inside Tracker analyzes your body's data to provide you with a clear picture of what's going on inside you and to offer you science backed recommendations for positive diet and lifestyle changes. They do this starting with a simple blood draw and DNA swab. Going into this new training cycle, I'm excited to learn exactly what is going on within my body and then implement their smart recommendations so that I can be giving myself 
fueling myself with exactly what I need to perform my best. Training for a marathon, it's hard enough as it is. I want to be able to get a leg up and do the best that I can with what I have. And that begins with Inside Tracker. You can get a 20% off discount on the entire Inside Tracker store by heading to Inside Tracker, that's I N S I D E T R A C K E R dot com slash hurdle today. Again, that's 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store today by heading to insidetracker.com slash hurdle. Know what's going on with your body. Trust me, it is the kind of knowledge that we all need. So aside from the hokas, a lot of individuals listening to this may lean into a high stack height shoe for something like racing. Those shoes as well, many of them, including a carbon plate. What should someone know about integrating carbon plated shoes into the routine if they want to keep the betterment of their foot health in mind? Yeah, so carbon plates are a, a well-known orthopedic, pedorthic, kind of within this medical foot space, uh, material that was used to transfer energy. When you take something that is medical and you twist it to be consumer-based, you now don't know the quality of the carbon that you're getting. So the you know, miracle responses of what we think of any sort of ad, just just take it with a grain of salt because it has to do with the stiffness and the thickness of the carbon fiber that's being used. So it's not going to make you win the race, guaranteed because of the shoe is what I'm trying to say. Now, carbon fiber is stiff. So this is one thing that is an advantage of carbon fiber is that it is going to be harder and stiffer. Harder, stiffer interfaces with the foot are more neurologically stimulating. So if you have a shoe with a stack with the cushion that is not really sensory friendly, but you put a carbon fiber interface on it, now you've put stiffness back into the interface, which just upped some of the sensation to the foot. So I actually would favor that environment more. I would just, again, say, like, is this shoe going to make me, you know, super Emily? I don't know. I doubt it. But it's just another trend that everyone is using carbon fiber right now within the footwear space. For someone that uh, is navigating plantar fasciitis and they may be thinking about alternative treatments aside from talking with a physical therapist or a podiatrist and getting an actionable like exercise plan, can that person be considering uh, something like ibuprofen or ice rolling or what else would you recommend to them when it comes to managing that pain? So pain associated with an acute itis. Here we'll talk about plantar fasciitis. Yes, you could do icing. Um, there is some controversy around icing. Does it work? Does it not work? In the acute setting and just across the board, what ice does is it vasoconstricts, which means it's just narrowing your blood vessels. If you do that in acute setting, um, you sprain your ankle, boom, put ice on it right away. It's going to limit the swelling because it just constricted the blood vessels that dilated as a response to the injury, right? So that's the strategy behind it. 
Similarly, or in addition to this vasoconstriction with the itises, is that it has a numbing effect. So it is actually just numbing the area so you do not perceive the pain. Does that give you a little like time out from the sensation? Sure, and that's great. Now, does it accelerate the healing process? That's where some of the research is like a little back and forth on it. But I think from a role in the healing process, it is something that you could do. I like rolling the foot on a frozen water bottle because you're getting then the foot massage that I want you to do anyway. And if you're going to do it on ice, then okay, we're numbing the area. We're getting some vasoconstriction. There's We're killing two birds with one stone or checking more boxes. Um, in addition to that, you can do oral anti-inflammatories. Again, this is where knowing, do you have acute or chronic? So chronic plantar fasciosis, right? Not going to respond to this stuff the same. That acute setting, you will respond like a majority of textbook patients to what we're talking about right now. Could you take oral anti-inflammatories? Yes. This is my advice on it. Successful oral anti-inflammatories for, let's say, acute plantar fasciitis is that it has to be taken every single day exactly as prescribed. You can't take it when you feel pain and then tomorrow you feel like, well, it's actually not that bad, so I'm not going to take it. That's not the point of the medication. It's not a painkiller. It is trying to modulate the inflammatory process that is happening. So I would always put my patients on Mobic, Mobic, which is a one pill once a day medication. So it's just like, hey, you wake up, boom, take it, right? Just do this for two weeks. Right. right? Not something high, high compliancy, easy to take. I do speak about systemic enzymes a lot in my practice as well. And they are a supplement that naturally modifies the body's inflammatory process. So that could be if any of the listeners are saying, I don't like medication. What are some supplements that I could take more in a natural way? Then I say systemic enzymes. Bromelain is in some of the systemic enzymes. Omegas are naturally anti-inflammatory. Resveratrol. So there's a lot of naturally anti-inflammatory supplements that are out there as well. Right. And something else that we haven't touched on just yet, uh, we did talk about the carbon fiber plates, but we haven't chatted about insoles. How do you know if you're someone that could benefit from an insole? Yeah. Insole to the listeners is probably having them think arch support, right? If I need an insole, that means you're essentially saying I need an arch support. Now that's what 99% of the insoles on the market are, are arch support based. Now at Naboso, we develop a sensory insole. So it's totally flat, has texture across it, and it is functioning different. So I want to first reference the arch support insoles. Now part of my acute plantar fascial treatment or foot stress treatment is to offload the foot and the tissue. So that's going to say, okay, I need to just support you a little bit. I'm going to put you in like a little bubble for a period of time to make sure that the tissue can heal itself and that we don't overload the system more than we already have. That's where I would actually look at art supports. And that is where I would also look at foot type. So if you have a flatter foot and you have acute plantar fasciitis, I need to give you a timeout. And that timeout is going to be with an arch support doesn't need to be a $500 orthotic because this is temporary. I'm just trying to put the fire out. So for that, I often recommend power step. 
there are many over-the-counter art supports or insoles out there. Um, not all of them are created equal. <laughs> so just know you get what you pay for. So I recommend PowerStep. It's the one that I get the best response with patients and the best positive feedback from the patients. From the sensory insole side, which is what we have at Naboso, is an insole that is designed to actually strengthen your feet. So that's where I would incorporate that once we put the fire out and we now want to strengthen your foot so that plantar fasciitis or foot stress doesn't come back, we need to strengthen your foot. And could we do that with a sensory insult such as Naboso? This is all so helpful. So one other topic that we should touch on, something that I know is frequent with people, whether they are active or not super active, is fractures. Foot fractures happen all the time, whether it happens during movement, whether it happens when you're literally kicking something in your home. When it comes to getting back to quote unquote normal activity, is there a quote unquote typical amount of time that you should be resting if you happen to get a stress fracture in your foot? Yeah. So a stress fracture is... The healing process and then the return to activity after a stress fracture is dependent on the severity of the stress fracture in the first place. So the most subacute stress fracture out there can take as quick as two weeks to heal. And I would have them immobilized for two weeks, and then I would do a gradual return to stress to the foot, probably over four weeks. So we wouldn't want to go from, okay, two weeks cleared and now I'm running 10 miles again. We don't want to do that. If someone does not treat the stress fracture right away and they keep stressing it, right? No pain, no gain when they're running or they're just like, I feel something, but then I ice it and they don't know. This is very common that let's say runners will experience something and they think maybe it's just like a little more of an itis, not a stress fracture itis, right? Walk it off. It's good. Okay. Uh, and then they actually are running on it for like a good six weeks. That can take closer to a average fracture healing, which is six to eight weeks. So they would be in a walking boot for the six to eight weeks. I then would have to retransition them back over probably a similar six to eight week period. But what I'm doing is not saying, okay, walk or lightly run like shorter distances as the technique to strengthen the foot. We need now to take a step back and say, okay, why did you get the stress fracture in the first place? Was it the shoes that you're wearing? Is it a disconnect from the foot? Is your foot is not strong? Your foot's not connected to your core. And then go back to that and say, let's do intrinsic muscle strengthening. Let's do foot to core activation. Let's slowly build this over the six to eight weeks. So after the eight weeks, you are fully back to running and actually stronger than before you first got your stress fracture. Got it. Okay. So varies from first person to person, but really important to make sure you're prioritizing the strengthening of the foot before you get back to the activities that you were doing before this injury occurred. Two more things I want to touch on. First thing, Achilles tendons. Thankfully, knocks on everything around me. I personally haven't dealt with anything rough when it comes to my Achilles, but obviously a huge pain point for so many people. What is it that we should know? I know we talked about everything from anti-inflammatories to icing for plantar fasciitis. I'm sure that some of those takeaways may be the same here, but talk to us about the Achilles tendon. 
Yeah, Achilles tendonitis is the biggest beep to treat because when someone comes in, I'm just like, no, like Achilles tendonitis is so hard to get under control. And it's because we use it literally every step that we take. So it is so hard to offload it or give it the rest that it needs without literally being in like a boot. Now, Achilles tendonitis, similar to the plantar fascia, is an elasticity injury that you've overloaded the demands of the tissue, micro tearing, all of that. Um, but here's the thing about the plant, uh, the Achilles tendon that's different from other tissue in the body is the blood supply is probably some of the worst of any of the tissue in the body. And it just has to do with its anatomy. So part of this healing process is first, be patient. <laughs> Just got to be patient. It's going to take probably five times as long as you think it actually is to heal it. Second one is certain things that you could do is like a heel lift, heel toe drop, like the shoes that we mentioned, actually go into those for this and stay in those. Avoid totally barefoot minimal shoes. Avoid doing barefoot activities because you're trying to give the tissue its time out so that it can heal itself, knowing it's going to take longer to heal than normal. Third thing, and this is where a lot of the research sits, is eccentrics. And I'm sure that you have heard of that to some degree of, okay, you have to do eccentrics for Achilles tendon issues. And that is doing the negative. So instead of doing a calf raise, you get up on your toes and you slowly lower your heel down. The proper eccentric load is actually much higher than people think. So you have to do many more repetitions than you think. You actually have to load it. So I want people to either put a backpack on and put a lot of stuff in there. I don't know what it would be. I was going to say your school books, but I'm <laughs> not listening. Put a bunch of books <laughs> back there and load yourself so that you can actually load it. You want to do it in different times or tempos. So it's really important to do the eccentric side of it. And then anything from a topical um, yes, you could do uh, the oral anti-inflammatories, but what I work with a lot of patients is doing red light, actually really like red light therapy with a lot of these soft tissue injuries. So you can get a red light box if you want to go to a red light sauna facility that's in your in your town. Awesome. Do that. Laser. So some physical therapists will do laser. You can do that as well. I like topicals, like topical CBD and things like that work. Uh, really well on the tissue as well. Um, that is really like the big things. And it's again, time, time, time. All right. Last topic here, just regular foot maintenance. It's probably not something that a lot of people think about, like, what should I be doing regularly for my feet? But it's an important question, especially if we do want to remain injury free. And like we talked about before, keep all of those toenails. So Anything that we should keep in mind when it comes to regular practices of taking care of our feet? I have three pillars for movement longevity. And those three okay. pillars are foot strength, foot recovery or mobility, I'm kind of call them the same, and then sufficient sensory stimulation of the feet. So with the foot strengthening would be some of the stuff that we spoke about, but it's not just doing like towel crunches and picking up marbles. We want your feet to be connected to your core. So any foot contraction I need incorporated with the pelvic floor and the diaphragm because that's the way your feet actually work. So it's very intentional or intentful foot 
exercises. Um, I actually am not a fan of doing towel crunches because it's kind of like doing bicep curls and then saying like, there, my bicep is functional, but that's really not the way your bicep works. Um, second with the recovery would be five minutes of releasing the feet and the lower legs, specifically the soleus, which is the bottom calf muscle every single day, five to eight minutes. If you can, uh, I'll tell people to release their feet while brushing their teeth. So it's just something to give it a little bit of a reset every single day. And then the third is that sensory stimulation that is going barefoot, even around your home for at least 30 minutes, get out of your shoes, let the toes spread, splay, breathe. Um, even better is be barefoot out on the grass. So you get kind of this earthing component to it as well, which is super awesome for inflammation and recovery. Um, but you want to do something sensory for the foot. So those three are my pillars of supporting the foot. And then honestly, when you do these things, the fourth that kind of ties in there is circulation. We need really, really good circulation of your feet, but you will get that through sensory stimulation, being barefoot, spreading, and then releasing the bottom of the foot. You mentioned that there could be more pain for someone navigating plantar fasciitis after longer periods of inactivity, whether that be overnight sleep or perhaps sitting at a desk all day and then getting up. For someone to maybe attempt to keep that initial pain at bay, could doing something like drawing the alphabet help in that situation, getting the foot moving again before you get up? Or is that an old wives tale? I would say that is an old wives tale. But what I, I will give you to do is do something to the bottom of the foot, whether it is just like a hand massage to the fascia, right? Um, you could do that. Or if you have a percussive gun, something like Theragun for the listeners, that's probably the most well-known on the market. And then you're just kind of lightly engaging and waking up and starting to warm it up. Because remember what causes that acute sharp pain when you step down first step in the morning is that the tissue is sticky. So we're just trying to warm it up and bring the circulation so that you're not stepping down with that rapid pull. All right. Got to keep my little hypervolt next to my bed now. <laughs> Perfect. Well, Dr. Emily, this has been so, so helpful. So many good tips, tricks, and takeaways here. How do the hurdlers follow along with you? How do they keep up with you so that they can get more in the future? Absolutely. So my Instagram is dremilydpm. I put a lot of content on there. So if people are hungry to continue to learn more about their feet, uh, follow me on Instagram. My podiatry practice is my name. So dremilysplickle.com. I do see patients virtually, so not just in person. Uh, so that is fun. And then for any of the Naboso products, which is a company that I founded, that website is Naboso, N-A-B-O-S-O.com. And then uh, to learn more about feet, I wrote a book called Barefoot Strong. And actually, if you go to the website for the book, I also have a foot type quiz. So people can go on there and actually determine their foot type and what it means. And that website is barefootstrong.com. So many great resources here. Again, Dr. Emily, thank you so much for your time. I have a feeling that you'll be back and there will be more questions <laughs> to be asked. I'm over at Hurdle Podcast and at Emily Abadi, another hurdle conquered. Catch you guys next time.